Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to the book of Proverbs. As you know, we've been coming to the book of Proverbs, and we're uh, going to finish up chapter 1 today. But you'll remember last week we uh, talked about verses 20 through 23 where it talked about wisdom crying out. And I showed you from that a number of things that I think not only will help you from last week, but will even help you understand today's message a little bit better because they kind of go together. But I showed you, first of all, five places that we need to proclaim the wisdom of God, uh, which obviously is in the form of the gospel. Five places that it talked about that we are to be a witness to. Five places that made it very clear that we are to uh, proclaim uh, the wisdom of God. And then we saw three basic types of people that you're going to have to deal with in this life as you proclaim the gospel. We looked at them and we talked about them. The Bible talked about simple ones uh, who love simplicity. It talked about scorners who really love to scorn. And then it talked about fools. And then I showed you in verse 23 uh, uh, three great New Testament doctrines on salvation and finding God uh, that is found in the Old Testament. And I showed you about repentance, and I talked to you about uh, conversion, and talked to you about the Holy Spirit of God when He begins to teach you in your life after you become truly saved. And today we want to close out this chapter with our, our next set of paragraph marks, and as you know, we've been kind of taking the book in, in sections by the paragraph marks. That's the best way to study it. And uh, I, want to, uh, I want to look at the next set in chapter 1, verses 24. Uh, on down through here to uh, verse 33. And here's what it says. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regardeth. But he have said it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, uh, they would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today to uh, take this message and touch our hearts today. We do love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you've given us and for all the things that, uh, uh, Lord, you provided for us. We thank you for our church, for its stand on the Word of God. We thank you for the men and the women in this church that love you and love the book and, uh, Lord, are side by side with me in the ministry uh, that we do the things that God has called us to do. We ask you to take this time now. We give it to you. We ask your Holy Spirit of God to look deep inside us and if there's anything in our hearts and our lives that may keep us from uh, getting and receiving and laying out the Word of God today, that we would put it under the blood, that we would come to you clean, that we might be able to proclaim uh, the wisdom of God and the truth of God. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's no doubt about this, that this passage is probably, I think, anyhow, the most terrible place in all of the Bible for an unsaved person. And yet you'll find today that you never hear this preached anywhere. Uh, you couldn't go across this country, you could go, probably go across this world in churches this morning, and I doubt very seriously if you find anybody that ever preaches on this today um, and uh, in any church. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We talked about it Thursday night, but first reason is the fact that uh, most pastors can't preach, or at least they won't preach. We live in a world where everybody wants to be taught. We live in a world where we teach because teaching is not offensive. We live in a world where we can say things in teaching uh, that won't offend people. But you can't preach without offending people. Uh, it just doesn't work. And we live in a Christianity where nobody wants to be offended today. That's the first reason. The second reason is that preaching on subjects like this really doesn't fit in the mix of 20 and 21st century Christianity uh, in this Laodicean world that we live in. A message like this is so devastating and terrible to the refined senses of most 
uh, Christians uh, who have long ago went to sleep and let the world around them just simply die and go to hell. And uh, there's no place for it today. And besides that, people, they don't want to hear today preaching on hell. That's why you never hear it. You got churches that run 2,500, 3,000, 5,000 people. You know how they build those churches? I'll tell you how they build them. They build them by never preaching a message like you're going to hear this morning. You can't preach the Word of God. You can't preach on subjects like this in the day we live in and build a huge church. It's just impossible. Preachers today don't, people today don't want to hear preaching on hell. They don't want to hear about eternal damnation. They don't want to hear about the wrath of God. They don't want to hear about the condemnation of God on the lost. Everything today is positive. Everything is today is you're okay, I'm okay. Everything today is, wants to be painted with a rosy color picture that everything in life is 100% posthumous. We praise Christ, but we don't preach Christ. And the tragedy of that is that we never understand or never figure out that real biblical praise is in the preaching of Christ. And we don't do that. Uh, negative messages have no place today in our churches. And messages like this that I'm going to preach to today have went by the wayside a long time ago. I think one of the greatest examples of that, in a, a, just to give a, 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 a context of it, is, is, uh, is Billy Graham. And I have no disrespect for Billy Graham whatsoever, and I have no argument with him, but uh, I think he represents what I'm trying to say today. When you would go back when Billy first started to preach in 1947, uh, I've seen some of those sermons, and brother, I mean, he's got 50,000 people, 30,000 people, and he is literally preaching the paint off the wall. He's talking about God's judgment. He's talking about eternal damnation. He's talking about the fires of hell. Boy, he is putting it to them. Now in the 2000, 2010, 2012, in the latter part of his life, after the neo-evangelicals got their claws into him, after somebody convinced him that the real key was to have great crowds, and the only way today you could have great crowds was to cut down the hard preaching, he no longer is sure there's an eternal place called hell. That's an incredible, uh, incredible place to come to uh, in your life. Now last week in verse 20 and 23, we basically had, if you remember, an invitation to find God and His salvation through the gospel being declared. Many passages like that in the Bible. Uh, verses 20 and 21 last week talked about the gospel being preached in five different places where people are. And we, we saw that we are to cry out with God's wisdom. We saw in verse 22 the three people groups that, uh, that the question is asked of them, how long? How long are you going to stay the way you are? How long are you going to be simple in your simplicity and not really care about anything? How long are you going to remain to be a scorner and scorn the things of God? And how long are you going to remain a fool and put Jesus Christ off? And then we saw in verse 23 a, a direct invitation to get saved. We saw in that a direct invitation for a man to get saved. We saw where he said turn, there was repentance. We saw where he talked about conversion. And then we saw where we talked about uh, getting the Holy Spirit of God. Now today, chapter 1, verses 24 through 33, it deals with the consequences of what happens when a man stays simple. The text that we're going to talk about today shows what happens when a man or a woman stays being a scorner, stays being a fool, and rejects the wisdom of God. And these consequences are terrible beyond belief. And you never hear them preached today. And this may be a shock to some of your systems, but I got to tell you, if you were alive 100 years ago and you went into the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church, uh, you'd hear the same message. 120 years ago, when you went to the Methodist church, that guy took the paint off the wall and tore your hide off about God's eternal damnation. You didn't like that. You went to the Methodist church. He did the same thing. You didn't like that and went to the Baptist church. He did the same thing. Now you can find a church that will give you exactly what you want to hear. Now you'll find a church that will make it real easy for you to be comfortable. And the last thing you want to do when you come to church is leave comfortable. That's the last thing you want to do. In fact, I'll take it a little bit farther. You don't want to be comfortable at all when you're there. Now, I know we give nice padded seats, and it's nice air-conditioned here, and it's uh, fans are going, and it's real comfortable, but my goal today is to turn up the heat a little bit. My goal today is to get you to the place where you leave very uncomfortable. My goal today is if you are lost and you're without Christ, that maybe you will get saved. 
My goal today is if you are saved, that you'll get your head out of wherever it's at and realize the world is dying and going to hell, and we are the only thing that many cases that stand between a man going to heaven and a man going to hell. It's just that simple. Now, these consequences are terrible beyond belief, and it's simply the day that you meet a holy God covered with your sin. Now, look at verse 24 and 25 here. I want to kind of set it up before we get to the actual passage here. He says in those two verses, because I have called and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. Now you see in verse 24, we see that God has called men. The Bible says the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You can't get saved on your own. No man seeks out God. No man, I've talked to people all my life and asked what they were doing in, in their religious life and trying to do, and they say, well, I'm on a search for God. You never find God that way. You know what? You don't have to search for God. God finds you. You'll, you'll never find him you looking for him. The Bible says the Son of Man come to seek and to save that which was lost. He'll find you. He'll find you. And he, he says here he called a man. And then the Bible says that he stretched out his hand to that man. And then it says that that man rejected him. Uh, look at verse 29 through 33. For they that hated knowledge did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Now, there are people all around you uh, all, the, all their life that they reject God, His Word, and they hate everything that God says, everything that God tries to do. You meet them all around you in life. And yet many of them go to church every Sunday morning. You don't have to just to be uh, out in the world to hate the things of God. I've met many a preacher. I've met many a person who said they were saved that had no use for the Word of God, no use for the things of God. They talk about it, but in the practice of their life, they deny everything that the Bible says that they should be. And uh, the Bible says in verse 31 that they're going to be filled with their own devices and eat uh, other fruit of their own label. That's Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. That is the fact that you reap, we reap what we sow. And an unsaved man who rejects God, listen to me now, an unsaved man who rejects the instruction of God, rejects the proof of God, he hates the knowledge of God, and he slaps God's hand when he tries to touch him, he shuts the door when God calls to him, it's going to come back to you. It's going to come back to you. Brother, that's going to be someday. The old timers used to say that when you reject the light of God that God gives you, it becomes the lightning by which God judges you. Boy, there's a lot of truth in that. And I want to bring you a message today on verses 26, 27, and 28. Now, this won't be as long as I normally preach because like we normally go through Proverbs, uh, there's a lot to lay out. But when you got a message like this, the philosophy is a stick jab and get out. The message today is not something you want to prolong. I don't have the energy to go an hour and a half on something like this, and you don't have the energy to listen to it for an hour and a half. It's that simple. No, no, when you preach messages like this, they're shorter than when you just get into Proverbs and I'm laying things out. When you get into a message like this, it's a slash, jab, cut, and get out. It's what you want to get in, do the damage, and then get out and let God do the work in it in your own heart. And that's what we're going to try to do today. But I want, to, I want to bring you a message today that I first heard in, in 1972 at a church camp down in Chautauqua, Ohio. Uh, Chautauqua was run by the Akron Baptist Temple, and I had just been a guy uh, newly saved, and we went down to camp there, and it was, a, it was a senior high week. That was high school kids, you know, from about uh, 14 to 18. And uh, it was, it, the service was in a tent. And I'll never forget that night, a man who is dead now, been dead for many, many years, but he was a great preacher and believed the book. His name was Lester Roloff. And Lester Roloff preached that message that night in his tent. And boy, I'll tell you what, Lester was a great preacher. I think the greatest message I ever heard him preach one time, other than this one, was he had a message name and the mule walked on. And it was about the death of a wicked man named Absalom, how he got his hair tangled in the tree. He was a great preacher. 
He was killed in a plane crash uh, uh, going back, from, back and forth to preaching about two, two, three years after I heard him preach this message. And it was in this huge tent uh, that they had at this camp. And he got up here and began to preach, and in the middle of that sermon, a tremendous thunderstorm rolled in. And I mean the lightning crashed, the thunder banged. I mean the rain came down, and old Lester, he never missed a beat. I mean the lightning crashed and the thunder boomed, and that thing was ripping the sky apart like God himself uh, was coming down to that meeting. And old Lester never missed a beat. In the middle of that thing toward the end, uh, the wind got so strong that it picked up the tent and half the tent collapsed on all the crowd. And through the screaming of the kids, fearful, and through the, all the counselors trying to gather their kids and try to get all the things together during that terrible storm, old Lester just kept putting it to him, boy, and he preached right through that thing. We had 200 kids saved that night. And the message he preached was right out of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and 28, the one I'm going to preach to you today on the laughter of God. Now it says in verse 26, 27, and 28, and I might add that I'll never do justice to it as Lester did, but I'll give it my best shot today. But he says in verse 26, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early but they shall not find me. Now, I, I got to admit, I got to tell you, I put myself into, into the mindset of most Christians today. You know, that's a hard to imagine, God laughing at somebody's calamity. I, I've had people in Bible study over the years, you know, not, not understand how this thing works, and, and some of them have a problem with it. And I'm sure that most Christians today, uh, uh, if, they, if, if you talk about just simply without explaining it, God laughing at somebody going to hell, I mean, come on. Jesus, lover of my soul. I mean, come on. We teach people to love unsaved people. Sure we do. I teach you to have a burden for the lost. Sure I do. What, did God lose his burden? God not love them anymore? I mean, uh, I teach you to pray for unsaved people. Bible says we should. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the compassion of God. We talk about the long-suffering of God. We talk about the mercy of God. And yet, when you read a passage like this, I understand. It's really hard for many Christians to grasp this concept. Today, when we live in Christianity, it's not what we know. It's what we don't know. And we certainly don't know much about God and the Word of God. If I'm convinced of anything today in the world that we live in, I'm convinced that most of God's people have no clue who the God of the Bible really is. Now, I believe they're saved. I believe many of them are. But I believe when it comes to understanding the God that saved you and the concept and the circumstances around him saving you, you're oblivious to it. You're as lost as a gospel in high weeds, man. You can't grasp the concept. Proverbs 28.5 says that evil men understand not judgment. And that's so true of unsaved people. Unsaved people look at 9-11, and they don't understand that God's judgment on America fell that day, and God's judgment on America is going to continue to fall. They don't understand that all through the Bible, I don't know why they don't get it. Oh, yeah, I do. They don't read the Bible anymore. All down through the Bible, God judges the nations that were once his that reject him by other nations. And us being attacked by the Muslims is no different than Israel being attacked by the, by the Midianites or the, or, the, or, the, or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Yet that verse says that evil men understand not judgment, but he, they that seek the Lord understand all things. You'd think God's people would get it, but they don't. They don't. But I want to tell you this morning, and I, I, on the authority of the Word of God, there is coming a day when all that is going to end. This idea that Jesus, lover of my soul, it works now. But there's a day when God gives you the light and you reject that light, that that light becomes the lightning that God judges you with. And you don't actually think, well, let me get to that point here in a minute. I, I don't want I, I, I to lay that out yet before I'm ready to get there. But there's coming a day that all that's going to end. And I'm telling you right now, on the authority of the Word of God, it's going to be the most terrible day in the history or the future or any time uh, in the history of man. 
and it's the coming day of God's judgment. It's the coming day. Yes, a day when God will turn his back on an unsaved man and laugh as he's condemned to the lake of fire. Psalms chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh about that day. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Now, I notice down there at verse 5, it says at that day, he's going to speak to them. What are what he's going to say? It says he's going to vex them uh, in his sore displeasure. What are what he's going to do? And yet, people don't like to think about it. There'll be people that will hear this message and they'll say, well, I don't believe that. Yet, what do you do with that? It says God is going to laugh at somebody's calamity. God's going to have them in derision. You know what derision means? It's a, it's a terrible situation to be in. Instead of them right now when we cry out to God and casting all your care upon him for he cared for you, in that day somebody's going to cry out, he's not going to answer them. He's going to turn his back on them. That's rough. That's hard. I understand it. I understand it. Now, so I can set this thing up a little bit. Let me, let me tell you, to tell the truth in the Bible, there, uh, we're going to talk about the laughter of God today. Yes, we are. But truthfully, to put it in perspective for you, there's four types of laughter found in the Bible. And I don't know if you know that or not, but I'm going to give them to you today in the process of this. The first one I want to talk about for just a moment, as we work our way up to the one we're going to preach on today, is, will be the laugh of victory. And this will be found in Psalms 126, verse 2. It says in that great passage, When the Lord returned again, the captivity of Zion, we were them like them that dreamed. There was a dream come true. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. They said among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. To turn our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. For he that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, if you don't know what this one is, this is the laughter of heaven. This is the joyful laughter, the victorious laughter, the victorious shout of the happy soul, you and me, by, saved by God's grace, and now we have overcome everything. Right now, when you got saved, you've overcome the world. And you can be happy about that, and you can laugh about that, and be glad about that, but you're still in this world. And tomorrow, even though you're saved, you're going to have to face all the filth and all the ungodliness and all the brokenness and all the heartache that this world brings with it. But I want to tell you something. There's coming a day when my Savior comes back and takes me out of this world. There's coming a day when he's going to come back and lift me out of this cesspool and he's going to set my feet on those golden streets of heaven and he's going to deliver me and I'm going to overcome and I'm going to walk down the street and I'm going to sing free at last, free at last, free at last. I'm going to be free from everything this whole world had for me and I'm going to laugh and I'm going to be some shouting going on and we're going to be slapping each other on the back. Best God, we're going to be home to heaven. That's a laugh of victory, see? That laugh is going to ring down through the corners of heaven for all of eternity. There'll be no weeping and wailing in heaven. You know why? Because there's no time for it because we're laughing too much. We're having too great a time. We're talking about the day God overcome and we overcame through him. And now he's taken us from this place and forever we'll be with him. Oh, that's the day. That's the laugh of victory. Heaven will be filled with this laughter. Then the second one is the laughter of skepticism. This will be found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, where you have the story of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, Sarah was told that God was going to give her the promised seed. Now, you've got to remember that Sarah, I think her Sarai at that point, she hadn't changed her name yet, she's about 87 years old. Most 87-year-old women don't have children. And Sarah was told by God, Abraham is in his 90s, and, 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 and most guys in their 90s don't father children. And, and she's told, she hears, overhears God saying, I'm going to give you a child. And the Bible says she laughs was in herself. That's the laugh of skepticism. That's the laugh you hear with some of your friends who, when you tell them what God's going to do or what he's done for you, they laugh at you. They don't believe it. Later on when she's confronted 
she tries to, to lie her way out of it and say, well, I didn't laugh, but oh no, the record was clear. The account was written down. And the Lord says, nay, but you did laugh. This is the laugh of skepticism about God. This is the laugh that you hear with your friends at work about God and who he really is, about the Bible. Is it really the word of God? This is what you get on your, your history channel when you watch the movies, Mysteries of the Bible Solved. And you turn it in because you think you're going to learn something about the Bible. All they do is take a miracle in the Bible and show you how it wasn't a miracle, that it was just something that happened naturally. That's all it is. That's all it ever is. This is the one where they, they laugh about the skepticism of the King James Bible being the Word of God. And they'll make fun of you because you can believe it. They used to call us hillbilly Christians because we believe this old book. They used to say, well, I know it was good enough. The King James Bible for good enough for Paul and Silas. It'll be good enough for me. They used to say, well, the Bible, you believe the Bible parachuted down from heaven written on a golden typewriter. Matter of fact, I do. That was a skepticism. They, they're so skeptic. Moses, I, I watched one of those things on the History Channel one night. I just for pure entertainment. And uh, it wasn't the fact that Moses really crossed the Red Sea. It was the fact that Moses crossed the sea of reeds. It wasn't the fact that Jephthah really killed his daughter. That's a mistranslation. Why would God let a man really kill his own daughter? He did. John the Baptist didn't really eat those bugs, locusts, that you see flying around in your backyard. No, he ate a plant called the locust plant. Yes, and you've ground it up and been smoking it for 20 years now. I had a professor one time who was a, 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 a philosopher, and he's a counselor, and he said, I believe the Bible's truth, but I don't believe the Bible's all truth. I believe there's truth outside the Bible. There wasn't really a universal flood in Noah's time. It was a local flood. Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 1, 2 really didn't take place. There's no such thing as a gap. Oh, there's no such thing as a real legitimate creation. It was theistic evolution where God created it all, but then he set evolution in process, and it went over from there. Oh, to Genesis chapter 6, we're not the sons of God, we're not fallen angels. How stupid is that? They were the godly line of Seth marrying the ungodly line of Cain, the skeptics. The third one is the laughter of sinful merriment. You'll find this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Then he says, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Now this is the laughter that echoes from the office parties, the pool halls, the beer halls, the locker rooms, the penthouses, the beach parties, the frat parties. It's the dirty jokes, the dirty pranks that make fun of everything that's not funny. It never ceases to amaze you in America. Not 24 hours after some tragedy befalls America, you can go to late night TV on Saturday Live with one of those clowns and they're making sport of it and making fun of it. It's fun spelled S-I-N instead of F-U-N. And America is literally laughing her way straight to hell. Somebody, went, somebody said one time, the laughter of today over your sinfulness will be followed by the wailing and the weeping and gnashing of teeth of tomorrow. And that's so true. And then the last one here is the one we're going to preach on today. We're going to settle in now. And this will be our text, verse 26, 27, and 28. The laughter of God's condemnation. Proverbs 1, 26, Psalms 2, 4. Old saying in the world that really comes from the Bible. Now, we hear it all the time growing up. We hear it all the time as we want to get even with somebody. And it's always used in that context, and you're all aware of it. It's a simple little word, phrase that says, he that laughs, laughs, laughs best. And in the world, the world thinks that when you get the last hand in something, you get the last say in something, when somebody does you wrong, how many times have you said to them, well, you go ahead and laugh now, but just remember, he that laughs, laughs, laughs best. That comes from the Bible. 
And uh, uh, there's another saying that you hear out there. People say it all the time. When you try to tell them something, they'll simply say, that'll be the day. Now, both of those phrases come out of the Bible concerning God's judgment of unsaved people. And uh, uh, it's the day that God shows up. Now, that day is talked about and, and found in Revelation chapter 20. So we want to turn over there quickly and read down here verses 11 through 15. This is the day that he's talking about. When somebody says, that'll be the day, this is the day he's talking about. When somebody says, he's the last, 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 best, that's what he's talking about, what we're going to look at. Now he says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, about this great, terrible judgment. He says, and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And it was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, as I said... This is a really hard chapter for most Christians today to grasp, to grasp the scope of it all. And, uh, but the implications are that God will, uh, God will return all the rejection. God will return all of the things back to you that you have done to him. And uh, the implications are that God will return the rejection that a man, good or bad, has heaped on God all of his life by rejecting his truth. And boy, uh, is it going to be a problem. And boy, do they laugh at God now. They talk about the fact that there is no God. Ho, ho, ho. I remember when Nietzsche, the great uh, atheist, I remember one time back in his time, he lived back in the 1800s, when he came up with the great concept that God is dead. And everybody embraced that. And everybody laughed. And I remember when he made that statement in front of all the philosophers, they all stood up and applauded and cheered and they laughed. I don't know who did it or when, when it exactly happened, but after he was dead and they had buried him, somebody walked by to put flowers on his tombstone, and some Bible-believing Christian is stuck in there because Nietzsche had said, God is dead, Nietzsche. Some born-again, obviously, Christian has snuck into that, into that graveyard and wrote on his tombstone, Nietzsche is dead, shine God. And brother, that's exactly what it was. He died, God is still alive. The Bible's just a book of fairy tales, ho, ho, ho. The Bible's a book like any other book. Uh, God loves everybody. We're all God's children. Uh, Christ is the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier. How many times have heard that? Christ really didn't die. Uh, he, he just fainted on the cross, and they put him into that cave, and the cool cave of 60 degrees revived him. It's called the swoon theory. Christianity's for old folks and kids. All the Bible colleges. And the making the fun of the Bible, making the fun of God, making fun of Christians who believe the Bible. Well, my friend, that'll be the day. And that'll be the day that he laughs, and he who laughs, laughs, laughs best. That'll be the day when he comes back, and he takes charge, and he sets the record straight. Look, you idiot. Verse 24 says, he called you. He died for you. He stretched out his hand to you, and you slapped it away. You laughed at his church. You rejected his counsel. You laughed at his son. You laughed at his holiness. You laughed at his Bible. You laughed at his commandments. You laughed at his principles of life. You made fun and sport of his people. Now you stand before the assembled universe, and he's going to return the favor. You don't actually think you're going to go through your life making fun and laughing at a holy God, either by openly doing it or by doing it in your life, by disobeying the word of God and doing your own thing, and you're just going to stand up there and retribution is not going to come back? He says that, he says that you're going to, he's going to repay all of the devices. You know what those devices are in the book of Proverbs? The Bible says there's many devices in a man's heart. Those devices are all the things that you put into your heart that get you around Jesus Christ. And in that day, they come back to you. Now you stand before the assembled universe, and he'll return the favor, and he'll laugh at you and your calamity. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, 
whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued forth and came from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. That's the day. That's the day we're talking about. That's a day where every unsaved man, every unsaved woman is going to stand before God and give an account. Give an account. I mean, it's real simple when you think about it. When you look at the text here, the unsaved man's response to the gospel invitation is six things in our text. Look at it. In verse 24, a refusal. In verse 24, an indifference. In verse 25, the effort to make the word of God of none effect in your life. In verse 25, to turn it down flatly and definitely. Verse 29, to hate and despise it. And verse 30, to hold God and his invitation in total contempt. That's it. So you know what God does? It's no big deal. So then at the last judgment, the last day, God's day, God returns to the sinner. Six things also found in the text. Look at it. Look at it. Verse 26, you get fear. Verse 26, you get calamity. Verse 27, you get desolation. Verse 27, you get destruction. Verse 27, you get distress. Verse 27, you get anguish. Oh, but I can hear it. I hear it from the peanut gallery again. Oh, God is such a loving God. What about his mercy? What about his love? What about his compassion? How could a loving God do such a thing? Well, let me enlighten you. You do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. Let me help you. Let me help put it together for you. The love of God, you want to talk about it, do you? Good. Let's bring it up to a modern 21st century ecumenical council deal. Let's dialogue. Let's share some things. Let's have an exchange of ideas here for a second. Let's have an experience. Let's have an ecumenical movement. You should have two of those a day to be a regular Baptist anyhow, so let's just stay with it for a second. Do you know what, God, what the love of God even is? Do you really have a clue? We talk about the love of God. You hear it all the time from preachers. You hear it all the time about how much God loves you. You hear it all the time about God is love. You hear all the time about the love of God. Do you really understand from the Bible what God's love is? God's love, the love of God is not God loving the sinner. But the love of God is simply God pouring out his wrath on his son on the cross for you and me. The love of God is the day God turned his back on his son so that he wouldn't have to turn it on you and me. The love of God is the day his son cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God forsook him. That's the love of God. It isn't that God loves everybody and God loves you and God loves me. The love of God defined is God pouring out his wrath on his sinless son for sinners like you and me. That's the love of God. Why did he forsake him? He was forsaking for you and for me. That's why. Oh, I think about it all the time. I close my eyes and I think about it from that sixth to the ninth hour when he hung on the cross, when all hell came to him. I look at God up there in heaven looking down at his son. God said about his son, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. God looked at him and said in Psalms, he's the apple of my eye. God looked at him and loved him because he was everything that God wanted. Abraham wanted a son. But oh, when God had his son, he loved him so much. And they had sweet fellowship, perfect union, perfect fellowship. But oh, there's God sent his son down to die for you and me. And they took that sinless son of God, uh, the only man who never did anything wrong to anybody on this planet. And yet, why does nobody want anything to do with him? They took that sinless son of God and they whipped his back. They put the cat of nine tails to him. They beat him. They spit in his face. They pulled out his beard. They laughed and mocked and made fun of him. And then they put a 250-pound wooden cross and made him drag it down the road to Golgotha's Hill. Then they took nails and they put them through his hands and his feet. They hung him up there. And then they mocked him and they said, If thou be the Son of God, come down off that cross. They humiliated him. They stripped him naked. And they made fun of him. And from the sixth to the ninth hour, the judgment of God fell on him for me and you. Boy, when I look at that in my mind's eye, I think there was a time when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
I think the hand of God was absolutely ready to wipe out planet Earth. I believe God was filled with it. I believe his rage and indignation. I believe that he raised his hand to send 100,000 angels to wipe out the planet Earth. But as he put his hand up, he cried out and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God was ready to wipe out this planet. And his son said, Father, don't do it. Bob Alexander needs a savior. Kevin needs a savior. Bob Gregg needs a savior. Everybody down there needs a savior. God, don't, Father, don't do it. And the hand of God was stayed. I think of the story that I heard it happened back in the 50s down in Steubenville, Ohio, of a man that ran the drawbridge that allowed the ships to go up and down the Ohio River there in Steubenville. And his job was to sit up there in that little house and raise that bridge when the ships went through. And then he put it down and the trains would go across. And one day, his little boy wanted to go to work with him like all little boys want to go to work with their dad. And his little dad took him to work, and they sat there, and all morning long, when the ships come down and blew the horns, they'd raise the bridge, and they'd go by, and he'd put it down, and the train would go by. Well, they were out there, and he had a little break, and he was walking and showing some things, and he heard the phone ring, and he picked up the phone, and it was the dispatcher, and he said, there's a, been a misplacement here. He says, uh, he said that they're, uh, that you got to make sure the bridge is down because there's a passenger train that's going to come through and we missed it on the, on, the, on, the, on the plotting chart and it's got to be down. And he looked up and the bridge was up because the ship was starting to come down through it. He ran back up into that little thing and his little boy ran next to him and as he crawled up into that cabin, he turned around and he knocked his little boy over and the little boy went into the Ohio River. And he looked down there at that little boy, a true story, looked down at that little boy as he fell into the water. And he started to go down, and about that time, he heard the whistle of the train coming, a passenger train with 400 people on it, and the bridge was up. He looked at his boy, and he looked at the train, and he looked at his boy, and he looked at that train, and, and in a split second, he got back up there, and with tears running down his face, he put his hands on those levers, and he pulled that lever down, and that bridge went down, and 400 people went across that bridge and never knew the body of his little boy washed up about three days later down the Ohio River. He gave the life of his son, that 400 people who never even understood what happened, went home that night to their families. Oh, I'm telling you, there was a day, there was a day when God's son looked up to heaven and said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And God turned his back on his son so you and I could go to heaven. And you reject that? You turn your back on that? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary by letting his son die on that cross. That's the love of God, you incredible fool. Well, the Bible says that God can't even love an unsaved man without the cross. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. If you're unsaved here this morning, you're as good as in hell with a door locked and the key rust, lock rusted up and the key thrown away. The only way God can love us as an unsaved people and love me as an unsaved man and love you as an unsaved woman before you got saved was by looking at you and me through the death of his son on Calvary's cross. That's all. He has to look at us through the screening of the blood. And that's the only way he can love us. And you reject it. You mock it. You make fun of it every day of your life. When you reject that, my friend, you're done. And what have you done with it? That loving sacrifice of God of turning his back on his son so he won't have to turn it on you and me. You reject it. You mock it. You disdain it. 
you use it, that holy name as a cuss word. You take that holy name into your filthy lifestyle and your jokes and your commentators. You take it and you trample it under his feet, under your feet. And you laugh at laugh at God and all that he's done for you. Well, there's coming a day that he laughs, laughs, laughs best, and now he's going to laugh at you. Hey, there's a day coming when you call for him and he'll not answer. He's going to be done being your errand boy. There's a day coming when you'll seek him, but he will not be found. You rejected him as your savior. Now he, he, he stands there and to be your judge and he rejects you. Do you have any idea what the laughter of God is really all about? Do you, do you, I mean, do you really think God's laughing because you're going to hell? Do you really? God's people today are so far from God and the Bible and understanding who he is, it's incredible. I mean, when you know the Bible, you know, Proverbs 28, 5, evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand of all things. When you know the Bible, you've got to admit that day is going to be quite hilarious. I think that day will keep everybody in stitches because it's going to be the day that you as an unsaved man or woman have to try to defend yourself and your sin and show God and the assembled universe why you're as good as God's son and deserve to go to heaven without his sacrifice. That's going to be a hoot. That's going to cause the assembled universe to break out in laughter. Talk about being funny. The day you and, I have to, you and I have to stand there and you're an unsaved man and you have to stand before God on that throne, all the assembled universe, and you have to declare to all of them why God's salvation was no good for you and you are righteous and you deserve to go to heaven and you are better than his son. Why, that whole universe will break out in spasms. In the book of Zechariah, you have a picture of that day. Most Christians couldn't even find Zachariah if somebody put a gun to their head. It's a frightening picture. It's a horrible picture. Found in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And it's a picture and a model of what's coming for an unsaved man. It says, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, stand before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Was not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, just like you and I were, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, Take away the filthy garments from him. And he said unto him, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee that I will clothe thee with chains of raiment. That's the day you got saved. But do you see that? Do you understand now that that great white throne judgment, it's a courtroom. You got a judge. It's God Almighty. And you as an unsaved man or woman are going to be the defendant. And you have a trial set. There's a sentence that's going to be imposed. And if you're found guilty, it's going to be the lake of fire. And on top of that, according to the passage, you have a prosecuting attorney standing right beside you. That's be the devil. 3.1 says the devil at your right to resist anything you say. You're going to start to declare how your righteousness is. And boy, the prosecuting attorney in that courtroom is going to stand up and show the real picture of who you really were and what you really said and what you really did. Every time you try to defend yourself and come up in this court before Almighty God and you try to declare your righteousness, there's going to be one who stands at your right hand that knows every thought you ever had, knows everything you ever did, saw every move you ever make, and he's going to stand there and he's going to resist you before Almighty God. <laughs> now, I want you to notice that what an unsaved man doesn't have here is a lawyer for his defense. That would be Jesus Christ. Now, do you know why as a saved man and you as a saved man or woman won't be at this trial and never have to worry about this judgment? 
Have you figured it out yet? Do you know why us as saved people, we got a judgment we got to go to, but it ain't this one. And we will never be here. And have you figured out yet why we're not going to be here? It's easy. I got a great lawyer. I got a great lawyer standing on my right hand. And he makes intercession for me. That Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 that the devil's the accuser of the brethren. My lawyer got my case thrown out of court. My lawyer, he got, he pleaded my case. And when I was guilty and when I was rotten and I was without hope, he stood up and took my place before the judge. And every time the devil stands up and wants to accuse me, my eternity stands up and says, I object. He's under the blood, Father. I know what God does? Throw my case out of court. You need a lawyer. You need somebody that will take your defense because if you don't get it, you're going to be your own defense. You're going to be up against one of the sharpest minds you ever saw on this planet. But on that day, you'll have to defend yourself. And you'll have to try to prove the assembled universe, the sons of God, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, and God himself, how you are not guilty of sin, how that these filthy rags of unrighteousness are not really there, how you're not guilty of sin, and you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ without ever taking his salvation. Quite hilarious. Why, if you weren't in an eternal glorified body, you'd die laughing. You'll stand there in those filthy rags of your unrighteousness and you'll plead your case. Most people think the great white throat judgment is like a big set of scales where you show up and God puts all your good works in this side and all your bad works in this side and you want to weigh out somehow and if your good works outweigh your bad ones, you go to heaven. If your bad ones outweigh your good ones, you go to hell. It ain't that way. He's going to put you in his hand and Jesus Christ in his hand and he's going to weigh you out. He's going to read your meter, baby. And you're going to be found wanting in the scales. And one by one, they'll come. Every president, every king, every potentate, every queen to stand before God. And they'll make their defense. They'll talk about how they did this and their public service and all the good things that they did. They'll talk about how that they defended uh, other countries and they helped people and they dealt the poor and they did this all to no avail. One by one, they'll stand before God. Every movie star, every rock star, every porn star, every judge, every politician, every fireman, every policeman, every nurse, every doctor, whoever rejected God and rejected his counsel. And one by one, they'll come. All the great philosophers, all the great theologians, all the skeptics, all the scorners, all the simple ones, and all the fools. One by one, from the president to the bum on Skid Row, they'll stand before God and plead their case with the devil at their right hand to destroy them as their prosecuting attorney. That Bible says, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, from which heaven and earth flee away. Oh, when I think about this, I imagine a throne so big that it covers the whole size of the universe. And there he is. There he sits on the throne. There's the ancient of days. There's the eyes of a burning fire. There's the sinless son of God. There's the hair white as snow. There's the ancient of days that stood and, and Daniel talked about. And now the judgment is set. The books are open. There he is. The only one that could have saved you. The one who died for you. The one who stretched out his hand to you and called you and you rejected. And the only one who could make your defense. Now you own it. You're on your own. And now you stand alone. Now he, he turns his back on you because there was a time when he turned his back on his own son for you and you thought you were too good for that and you rejected and you laughed your way right into hell. Well, now it's his turn to laugh, and he who laughs last, laughs best. You'll stand there guilty before Almighty God. And you, with every statement of how you were a good person, 
with every statement of how you had this foundation to help all these kids get educations, or you were a Shriner, or you were a, a Mason, or you, all the good deeds you did, and all the things you did in church, and all the simple alibis you have and why you rejected the Holy One will be let with laughter. Laughter of how any sinful man could ever compare himself to God's Holy Son. What a joke. That, my friend, is the essence of the laughter of God. Philippians 2.10 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, you'll either do it now when he's a God of love with an outstretched hand or you'll bend that knee in that day as a sinner defending yourself. You'll accept him. It's not a matter whether you accept him as Lord or you don't. It's just a matter of which place you do. You'll do it in that day as he stretches out his hand of judgment against you and says the most terrible words ever spoken anywhere in the history of the world. Remember Psalms 145? He'll laugh and he'll speak to them in his wrath. This is what he says. Here it comes, the most terrible words in all of the Bible, the most terrible words in all the human language. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, ye cursed, and the laughing fire and brimstone. Prepare for the devil and his angels. You'll stand there on that throne. You'll plead your case. And brother, at that point when it's hopeless and you realize that you blew it, you realize that he died for you, he stretched out his hand for the first time in your life, you're going to realize what you didn't do. And you'll bow that knee there in that throne and you'll bow that knee and you'll say, Jesus Christ is Lord. You can bow it now. You can trust him now. But in that day when you don't do it now, you will do it then and you'll bow your knee and you'll say, Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll stand up and God will take that power to hold you down and down you'll drop. That lake of fire, that lake of fire may be 10, 20, 30,000 light years below where you're at. You'll fall through space tumbling as that lake of fire gets closer and closer and closer. And all the way down through that fall, you'll hear the laughter of God's condemnation. The laughter that God wanted to give you as the laughter of victory. But you now were bent on taking the laughter of condemnation. You'll be laughed at because of the fact that you thought you were better than the one that died for you. You'll be laughed at because you actually thought that your righteousness could merit something with God. The most devastating, blasphemous thing that you could ever say or ever think is the fact that your righteousness could match up to God's son's righteousness. By that fact, then God just wasted his son on that cross. I've had people tell me, well, after they've been saved, and they say, well, I've been baptized. I said, baptism doesn't save you. I said, did you ever stop thinking about this? If baptism saved you, why did God have his son die on the cross? Why didn't he just tell everybody to get baptized? You idiot. I've had him say, well, I, 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 yeah, I'm saved. I go to church. Well, if that's how you get saved, why did his son have, do you understand the agony that he went through? Why did he go through that if all you had to do was join a church? None of those things will save you. No good works will save you. There's only one thing that will save you, and that is God turning his back on his son so he won't have to turn it on you and you rejecting it. You rejecting it. Now, I'm telling you, this day is coming. And you know what? The most terrible thing about hell, I think, is the fact that you don't have to go. I mean, if he forced you to go and you didn't have a thing to say about it, you could always be in hell for all of eternity and say, well, I was forced here. I didn't have, but that Bible told you in Matthew chapter 25, 40, he says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never prepared for you. God never thought in his mind that you would take the love of him turning his back. God thought that you were so tender when you understood the fact that he turned his back on his sons, it would melt your heart and you would come to him. Didn't work that way, does it? Some of you are so hard and so cold. Some of you are so indifferent. And a lot of that goes back to the preachers that stand in the pulpit and don't preach messages like this anymore. They just preach those nice, soap, soft messages that are very smooth and very, very clean and very unoffending. And then you go out of there not understanding anything about the death of Christ and thinking you're okay. God thought for sure you'd take his hand. God thought for sure you'd come to his call, accept all that he did for you, take his counsel. But when you don't, you own it. It's all yours. And the most terrible laughter in all the Bible is the laughter of God to your condemnation. 
versus the most sensational laughter in all the Bible and the history of man, the laughs of victory. I'm home. A place for all of eternity. We'll sing, we'll shout, we'll laugh. All to the glory of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, what a glorious day that will be. Tabby played the song today, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a rest like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When there, we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now that's something to shout about. That's something to laugh about. Home to victory. The laugh of victory or the laugh of condemnation. But the choice is yours. Every head bowed and every eye closed.